Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar guest episode, we're doing two this week. A little bit shorter hits here. First one with our pal, Mike Pohl, Managing Director of Chip Ganassi Racing. Took a look and counted. <laughs> this is Mike's 22nd appearance on the good old podcast. What do you get someone? You know, 10th anniversary, 20th. What is 22? I don't know. What should we give him? Anyways, give me, let me know. Give me an idea. Not a ton to get to before we get rolling here with Mike. Just a couple of quick notes of things that have popped up. Very saddened to see some of the furloughs and cuts made at the IndyCar Series and IMS that took place over the weekend. Interesting to note, Kate Davis, who is highly regarded for her work in PR and communications, came over to IndyCar from NASCAR with Mike Zizzo. Looking at a press release that went out last week, there were four names at the bottom of that press release, Mike Zizzo being the head, Kate being Zizzo's number two, also Kurt Cavan, Arnie Sreben as well. You look now, it's just Kate. An entire department, barring one person, has been furloughed, that being Kurt and Arnie, and released altogether in Ziz. Makes things tough. And this is one I will admit, you all know that I'm a huge supporter of IndyCar. It's been a passion of mine forever, before it became a profession. We do our best to share the positive stories with you, the positive takes. We also do not shy away from the negative ones. Just sharing here, if we're talking strategery, and we're looking at a shutdown due to a virus for a month, two months. We're not sure how long. We know it's going to be longer than anyone wants. What's the one thing you can do to try and keep fans engaged? Well, it's generating content. You might have heard me say in the past couple of episodes, before the virus, myself, other reporters, other PR reps, content generators, by and large, we were reporters, we were analysts, we were something along those lines, 100% of the time. With this coronavirus and the majority of the country staying at home by mandate, we're maybe 50-50. That other 50%, the new 50%, we're here to distract, we're here to amuse, we're here to give folks something to take 5, 10 minutes, whatever amount of time per day, help pass some time while folks are required to be at home. Strange strategery, if you ask me. What's the department that would do that best for a racing series that can't go racing as planned? That would be your communications department. And if you blow out 75% of an already small, very small department and leave one woman standing... A, I feel for Kate, who's awesome, but she's just one person. Uh, this one, not as if they have to explain their decisions, obviously, but this is one that has me scratching my head. The department that's going to keep you well-placed, amusing your fans, entertaining your fans, just in overdrive during this really bizarre 
circumstances we find ourselves in, you turn them loose or send them home for a couple of months. Uh, Maybe I'm not seeing the bigger picture here, but if we're talking about which departments to try and pause to save income, to look at dialing down the overall operating expenses and which ones you really would not want to jeopardize, I'd say communications is the one that (laughs) during your normal week is probably towards the bottom of the list. During a virus-related shutdown, man, that department, I would say, should jump to number one. So uh, just pray for Kate. (laughs) Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. This one's a little, little strange to me. Beyond that, I've had some other schedule type things go on. Saw that yesterday Toronto's mayor said, hey, no major events in the city until at least the start of July. Well, knowing that the Honda Indy Toronto is meant to take place July 10th through 12th, unless there's some sort of exemption provided, it's going to be impossible for the folks at Green Savory Race Promotions to build a street circuit in eight days. So spoke with one of their reps today, about 15 minutes or so, rather frustrating conversation where trying to get basic facts and information conveyed. And uh, I got the proverbial nothing burger, a lot of words said with no actual information inside of it. So other than knowing that conversations are taking place, and they have an intent to hold the Honda Indy Toronto as scheduled. Zero information as to whether the mayor, his office, or any other of the folks in Toronto that would say yay or nay have actually given the suggestion that they might be able to build the circuit in June during this event ban to potentially go forward in July. And what, worst-case scenario, If they were to say, yes, go ahead and build it. Realize you're not holding a major event. That's what we've banned. So you're not holding one, so it's okay to build up and prepare for one. And then what happens if, by chance, they decide, you know, going back to holding events on July 1st is not something we can do. We're going to extend this another month to, say, August 1st. And you all of a sudden have exhibition place in that downtown area, all but unusable because it's been set up for a motor racing event that can't be helped. So tough position for them for sure. Last quick note here before we get rolling with Mr. Hall also centers on schedule. Published a piece here on racer.com on Monday regarding fallback dates for St. Petersburg for Detroit. It's actually a bit of a holding month of October for Three events, possibly four. I have been told that IndyCar really does not want to cross swords with IMSA, which has moved its big, what used to be a season finale, Petit Le Mans Road, Atlanta, its 10-hour race. It's meant to be on the third weekend, I believe, in October. And that is something that IndyCar is trying to avoid, knowing that we have a number of IndyCar entrants that also compete there. Other than that, First weekend, second weekend, and fourth weekend right now. Very much looking like the place where Detroit and St. Pete 
and maybe Texas, who knows, could be held. So we'll have to see how things shake out. And if we do have more race dates pushed, could have a situation where IndyCar maybe needs to extend into November or just says, sorry, uh, we're not going to be able to rerun your race at a later date. Uh, Boy, talk about something else. Not looking forward to happening. If that is indeed the path they have to go down. We just don't know. We just don't know what things are going to look like. I can tell you, based on (laughs) dozens of conversations, drivers, team principals, even the series itself, there is a strong desire for us to start the season, as they have announced in this revised schedule, the weekend of May 30th and 31st in Detroit. There is a desire, but there's also not a lot of folks lying to themselves saying that they believe it will actually happen. So, hasn't been pushed. I don't think there's going to be a rush to push it, but at least based on the conversations I have had, boy, there's nobody I've heard from that has said, oh yeah, that's absolutely going to take place. So, if Detroit is not held in October, I will be very surprised. And the next up is Texas Motor Speedway, June 6th, and on and on and on. So, it's a bit of a rolling wave. We just don't know how many of the events now set to be our first and second and third might get hit by that wave and either tossed to the end of the calendar or potentially lost altogether. Final note for you, and that's because folks are very kind and continue to ask. My wife and I are doing exceedingly well, sheltering at home, being hyper vigilant with our N95 masks and gloves, and disinfectants, it might actually be comical. We're not keen on filming such things, but if we were, you'd probably laugh, because (laughs) uh, we're going through a lot of cleaning supplies, because we are taking every precaution possible, and just really being very serious about cleaning everything imaginable, including ourselves. Whenever we have to head out for an appointment and come back, yeah, we uh, just treat ourselves as contaminated and get a little bit nutty with the sprays and the wipes and everything else. I hope you are doing similar inappropriate things on your end, having to take care of yourselves. But as you all are so kind and continuing to ask how we're doing, what we're doing, if we're getting through this okay, we've been in this for quite some time well before the coronavirus, of just having to be diligent and smart about avoiding viruses and illnesses and all kinds of stuff. So we're a little bit ahead of the curve there, but we continue to do well. All right, let's get going with our man, Mike Hull, here, appearance number 22, the Marshall Pro Podcast, and your Week in IndyCar guest episode brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Then we're going to have a second one with my French fry, Sebastian Bourdais, a little bit later in the week. Is that the number one guest on the Marshall Pro <laughs> podcast on the other end of the line? Uh, well, I, I might echo that back to you because I think you're the number one person on the, on the, 
podcast, Marshall, but uh, I'm on this end uh, trying to answer some questions. What does appearance number 22 sound like to you? Does that sound like just epic bad? Because you're known for good strategery. This sounds like bad strategery on your end there. Well, I don't know. This is like an alternative strategy, all right. Um, um, But uh, we're happy to do it. And I'm amazed, really, at the the questions not only the fans ask on this podcast, but the questions they follow up with when we see them in person somewhere. Uh, They're... IndyCar fans are well engaged these days, based on your numbers at Racer alone, uh, much more so than what people want to believe about the uh, generational gap that we seem to we think we have. When in fact, I think your numbers that you'll come out with eventually will prove that the uh, those from eighteen to twenty five years old are really jumping on board with Racer and IndyCar. Well, we thank them. Uh, and anyone's bad judgment by listening to whatever nonsense I cobble together with words or by audio, amen to that. So in this new shorter format we're trying to do during the shutdown here, don't have a crazy amount of questions, but actually like that. I think we can do a, a shorter episode as a result. And rather than jumping into Mike, a listener question right away, wanted to start with one of my own. And we certainly aren't talking about Chip Ganassi racing, but we're just talking about the sport as a whole. This $2 trillion stimulus package that was passed, this effort to keep folks employed, in particular this Triple P program President Trump signed into action, the Payroll Protection Program, that really does seem like something, Mike, that if our beloved racing series indycar in this instance but imsa nascar you name it all these small businesses are going to stay afloat uh boy a lot of folks are going to need to be right there ready to submit the moment that they can Uh, share with us some thoughts about this mike and how this can affect our industry well i'm happy to do that uh generally the uh first of all i would say you know i watched these trump these uh, president trump uh uh, conversations every afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern time. That's when they seem to happen. So I would hope in the next few days he's going to say, well, our, our, our package is coming together and uh, all the teams in IndyCar Racing and NASCAR have taken advantage of the stimulus package. Uh, so I hope he does say that to help us all. The, in reality, I think it does help us if you, if you dig in and, and, and try, to, try to understand what it actually says. Uh, it it, it helps maintain people on the pay payroll there's some specifics as to how you qualify and who qualifies but all in all it keeps people gainfully employed however you decide to uh enact uh your portion of the bill um i think that's really important because what race teams if you look at the far end of this uh of where we are with this pandemic uh all businesses including motor racing are going to need two things when they come out of this. They're going to need capital, and they're going to need people. They go hand-in-hand in in motor racing. And unless you keep cash reserve on hand for when you come out of uh, the other side of this tunnel, this pandemic tunnel, you, you won't be able to be effective with your people and with your product probably for the first 30, 60, 90 days of when you go racing again. So I think race cars generally, uh, from a business standpoint, need to be cognizant of that. They need to understand that, and they need to be very, very careful in the next few weeks uh, 
how they protect that the cash they have on hand. Mm. So with with what Trump has done, I think that's a really good thing if you think about it like that, because what he's done is he's protecting our people financially uh, with us being able to use our local banker with the stimulus package. So we don't have to lose all of them in the process. They can come back gainfully employed or will as time goes on, and we'll have cash on hand hopefully to uh, – uh, grease the wheels, so to speak. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's a win-win situation for the American economy. It's certainly a win-win situation for race teams that are within the American economy. But let's face it, we race cars. It's not the most important thing in the world right now. No, but that, and that's where this, you know, that's where this so. provision with the uh, payroll protection program, as I say a lot of words that start with the letter P, that's where this that's where I'm so fond of this, Mike, is that you know, I don't care what political affiliation you have. This isn't a political discussion. This is a no, not Americans no. being employed and surviving yeah. conversation. I yeah, absolutely yeah. love what both sides of the aisle have done, what our entire government has done from the top with our president on down to the you know most junior senator or congressman or congresswoman to say, we need to limit the amount of people that are filing for unemployment. We already have a huge spike there. Here's a program to try and keep American companies afloat and their employees pay during a time where pick whatever job you have. Maybe you're a roofer. Well, you can't roof. Uh, maybe, you know, if you're a non-essential business, you can't do the things to generate income. Here's a way where we can, whether you are a, gearbox mechanic at indycar team x or a person who does gardening if you are someone that has an employee base below 500 employees and those people earn a hundred thousand dollars or less which are two of the provisions of this triple p program our government has said we're going to try and take care of you uh, to make money available so you can pay these folks and their lives don't fall through, fall apart, and you don't have to lay people off or fire folks because as a business, you don't have the income coming in. The only question here is $349 billion was set aside. That's a huge number, but every business with fewer than 500 employees, I would say, is going to be in line trying to gain one of these loans. Uh, What do you think about that aspect, Mike, knowing that we as an industry certainly need it, but... We could say that about every industry. Well, I think it does a couple of things. Number one is the people that have already been furloughed or laid off can come back to work, at least on the, on paper, depending on the, the respective state where they reside. Uh, because you still have stay-at-home orders uh, that have various definition based on the state. Uh, but it allows businesses to, to, to retain employees as opposed to the alternative, which is unemployment, as you're saying. Uh, I, I think that's really the key element to the whole thing is, is simply that. Motor racing is part of that. Where motor racing falls in the pecking order, I don't. it's not fair for either one of us or anyone else really to say because it's no different than baseball, football, tennis, golf, you name it. Uh, those are, those are uh, fan-engaged sports. Uh mostly by television and, and, and uh, personal attendance. And uh, uh, I don't know if that's 
should be considered at this point or not. I'm, I'm not the judge of that. I just know that we as a company have a very, very active business. We employ uh, between our two buildings, between North, well, between our three facilities, really the office in Pittsburgh, the, the, uh, the building in North Carolina, and the building in Indianapolis, well over 300 people. Mm. Uh, so if you think about it like that, there's all vocations under those roofs, those three roofs. And uh, they have families. Uh, they pay taxes. Uh, they go to the doctor. Uh, they go to the grocery store. They go to the pharmacy. Uh, they take their kids to the park. And uh, um, so they're no different than the people that work at uh, – at Denny's, <laughs> uh, delivering a, gl- a grand slam to somebody. So uh, uh, in that regard, we all participate in the American economy. We, we par- participate equally. If it comes to a, a pull, choose a number, pick a number, uh, where do you stand from 1 to 10 in terms of the vitality of your industry, that's a whole other subject. Uh, but uh, we're not voting here as a Democrat or a Republican. We're voting for the economy here. That's what we all have in common. And uh, the economy has been so good for so long that this has pulled down the shades in a lot of people's lives. And uh, we need to get the shades open back up. And we've already heard, Mike, that, you know, there are some IndyCar teams, again, since this is an IndyCar show, IndyCar teams, not limited, though, to IndyCar, but IndyCar teams that have already asked everyone on staff to take uh, pay cut uh, mentioned, I think last week, 20% a number I'm hearing across a lot of different racing series and teams as a number being asked, uh, there could be further needs to do that, you know, further cuts needed for some teams to stay afloat in this in between period where we hope the triple P program will be up and running by Friday. And they say there's a five to 10 day, turnaround for approved loans to get paid we also know that if you do as uh, they state which is use that loan to cover payroll um, utilities and rent uh, it'll be forgiven it'll actually be call it free money but we know that there's a situation Mike where teams are not going to have money on Monday from this program there could be weeks possibly until that happens and so there are some teams that might indeed need to make another round of cuts or make even deeper payroll uh, savings. So this is just from an immediacy standpoint, all the things that we worry about with the family that owns the corner hardware store that is in jeopardy of going under. Those same concerns are starting to be realized by racing teams as well. Uh, you're right. And uh, uh it certainly depends on how long it goes. Um, but I, I think race teams, what's, what's in common with them is, is the person that owns the Ace Hardware store in terms of having employees work for that particular person. There's no difference, really, if, if, uh, if, if they can live within the stimulus package with their employees for the uh, time period that that's allowed to happen without extension. Uh, they may go back to their employees the same as what you've referenced. They may go back to their employees like some race teams have done and said, hey, we're going to keep you on the payroll, but it's going to be at a reduced rate. And uh, uh, we want you to come back and work for us when, when it's all whole again. Or they may go back and say, you know, we've got the stimulus package now, so we can pay you at 100%. Uh, 
but I think what it what happens is, is when you run a business, you have to look at the revenue stream, the cash on hand, and the outlay, and uh, that's what will determine respectively each business, the way each business, not necessarily which way each industry uh, handles the situation. Let's talk about one more I item. I sound too much like a business guy and, and not enough of a racing guy here. Come on down to Crazy Mike's <laughs> Race Car Depot. You can get a loan for absolutely nothing. Oh, uh, Lord. Let's talk about one more item before we get to listener questions. And this story okay. just went up on Racer. We've known about it for a day or two. Uh, would love if you could share any thoughts or memories of the beautiful man that was Rod Campbell. Who passed away at yeah. 88 years old here just a day or two ago. For those who don't yeah. know, uh, father-in-law of our friend Townsend Bell, Townsend's yeah, Townsend, amazing yeah. wife, uh, Rod's daughter. Uh, we, I didn't know Rod well. Only got to know him later in uh, his life, uh, and just but a beautiful person with such an amazing career. Well, what memories do you have of Rod? For those who maybe don't know what he did for us. Oh my God. Um, uh, he, well, I don't know. In a, in a short sentence, he did it all. Uh, he was around it all. Um, I first came, became acquainted with him in 1985 when I worked for Ralph Sanchez and, uh, we had somebody in common there. And, uh, he, at the time Campbell and company was, was, uh, the company that he had well established and it was moving through, uh, a, a period of business escalation, um, and, uh, outreach. Um, he, and, and I got to know him, and we became friends. And uh, we didn't really have a lot in common uh, in terms of motorsports after that for quite a long time. But he would pick up the phone and call and say, you know, how's it going? What's going on? We'd talk, and I would do the same with him. Um, and uh, what was in common for me personally was that uh, when he was in the U.K. after the Brett Lunger thing, uh, so that was in the early 70s. Formula One program, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he actually started with Brett in Formula 5000. Brett ended up in Formula One. He stayed over there, and uh, he ended up with Morris Nunn at Ensign. Yeah, his marketing and, uh, and, his marketing yeah, and sponsorship servicing correct. services just transformed yeah. the sport. Yeah, and he was involved with Morris when Morris uh, uh, did the Mercedes uh, IndyCar team, kart team also. And so Rod was around, and uh, so I had those three, those those two people in common. Uh, he was one of the few people, few racing people that actually attended Morris's services in Tucson. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and we spent quite a bit of time there. And then this last December, when we had that uh, event at the Peterson Museum to announce the Ganassi exhibit, there Rod came, and uh, I had breakfast with him the next morning. Uh, he was such a positive person, uh, and he just he was one of those people that took the time to actually listen to what you were saying. Um, and uh, I can see why he had such a positive impact on people. Um, he certainly influenced the way Ford does, uh, the, does communications still to this day. And uh, a lot of the people that started with him with the Ford project are still there. Uh, in, in, in some capacity or other. So he had a massive global outreach and people, they may have heard of Campbell and company. They may have read the book that was written. Pete Lyons helped him write a book. I think, uh, they may have read that, but it's worth a purchase and a read. If nothing else, just to understand somebody in motorsports that didn't drive race cars that had a massive influence on motor racing. I remember 
I think getting an email from Rod, I don't know how long ago, but it was a couple years after I got into this media role. And he just was so curious and just wanted to send a note saying, hey, you know, would love if you had some time for a phone call. And I knew of him, but didn't know him. And Mm -hmm. it was fascinating thinking of myself as a guy who's not even close to being established in the media, right? I mean, I know I'd spent however many years, 15, 20 before that, uh, on the team side where, you know, crew member stuff. But, you know, I I barely think myself as qualified today, Mike. But regardless, just remember getting this outreach from Rod, who I guess had read some of the nonsense I'd written or whatever else. And he just wanted to speak and wanted to get a yep. feel for me and what I saw in my views. And it, it, I was baffled because here is someone who, if we're talking at the mountaintop of communications and PR innovation, presenting the sport to the world, really defining sponsorship, making that link between business and motor racing and driving i mean truly at the forefront of that 50 plus years ago this is a guy who you again mount rushmore in his wing of motorsports i should be begging to talk to him about anything and here he is reaching out to me the nobody of nobodies that's just such a fascinating part of what made him so unique that well, even with what we would say is stature beyond stature, his curiosity yeah. and wanting to just know and learn never went away. Gosh, uh, I'm, I try to never lose that. Uh, and boy, he was the epitome of eternal curiosity. You know, it, it, probably everybody that will listen to this podcast can name a person in their life that they've become acquainted with. Uh, and, and, and this is what this person will do. Now they don't see that person regularly. They don't talk to that person regularly, but that person acts like they're, they interact every day. The next time they see each other, there's no time loss, uh, with, with the, uh, with the distance of, of time, uh, with that particular person. And that's how he operated. You know, he, he picked up the conversation just like you had just finished an hour ago with the conversation. And you might not have talked to him for two or three months or maybe six months or depending on the person, maybe two years. Who knows? Um, and uh, he had such a such a grasp of keeping you in the present uh, by making you feel like you were part of each other's lives continuously, even though you really, in my case, you really weren't. Uh, you know, you, we weren't doing business together. We, we didn't have personal, a personal, interpersonal relationship on a daily basis together, but he made you feel so welcome. And, uh, uh, and he was genuinely interested in, in, in you. And that's a very, very rare quality. Um, and I think that's why he gained so much respect, uh, globally, uh, was just that he was that kind of person. For those who might have an interest our mutual pal Robin Miller just filed a uh, remembrance of Rod speaking with the uh, the legendary author and photographer Pete Lyons, who worked with Rod yeah, on his autobiography. That's on racer.com. Just went up here. So well worth yeah. a look. Let's start off our Q&A here. Uh, Mike, we're going to go with our pal Jordan Darwin. It says, Mike, what are your days like? with the shelter-in-place orders becoming more <laughs> widespread around the USA? 
I think, Jordan, uh, our days are probably in common. Uh, I don't know what you do or what you've done for a living or how you, how you live your life, but uh, I've tried to abide by the rules as best I can uh, uh, because I don't want to come in contact with somebody that can uh, affect my life adversely. Uh, but I've been very, very busy uh, in this day and age with electronic communication. Uh, you have a phone. But it goes way beyond that today. Within our company, we have a, a, a product called Microsoft Team, which is our version of Skype. And uh, you can use it internally and externally. Uh, so we're, we can be in the same room with as many people as we want to be. We can see their facial expressions. We can see uh, spreadsheets. We can see whatever they want to put up on, a, on a, an electronic board in front of us. And we can fully communicate that's a much better way to communicate than by text and email because you cannot understand inflection with either text or email. You can't understand inflection by voice and by sight. Uh, so we're working today as hard as I am anyway, and I think most of our people are working as hard as we ever have. I'm working like I'm in the office, uh, frankly. So I'm not at the beach. I'm not at the golf course. Uh, uh, um, so I'm just I'm working from home. Uh, but I'm working, and uh, a lot of our people internally are doing the same, uh, and we're trying to map out what we're going to do based on the reaction to what the, the in this case, the state of Indiana wants us to do with our people going forward, as well as working with IndyCar to understand when our people can go back to work as a group of people or uh, the progression of people as they go, as we ramp them up. Um, so we've been pretty, pretty hard on with those, Jordan. We've been pretty hard on with making sure our sponsors are engaged, our partners understand where we are, uh, and uh, we've got quite a bit of uh, activity going on. I was hoping to hear an answer of iRacing a Formula Ford all day long. <laughs> that's, uh, that would be great. That's... Uh, I'm, I'm, st- I'm starting to understand that. I, I, I can't say I'm slow on the uptake, but I've certainly paid more attention to that lately. Uh, just, just more so to understand uh, the escalation of it uh, for open wheel racing people, I, I think it's fascinating. I read a piece. I, I don't know who wrote that thing. I think it was on the racer site. Uh, maybe it was yesterday about Jimmy Johnson. Yeah, and how that, he's that how he's be- yeah. So uh, how he's become so immersed because he became the competitive juice that he has came out in him. Um, and I understand completely how that works. Uh, you when when something new comes along, you want to figure out how to how to be the best at it. <laughs> and uh, I, I can see how it can consume you, but it has, a, it, but it has such a, a fun factor to it. Um, yeah, I'm not opposed to learning more about it, I can say that. It's almost like the sport's filled full of A-type personalities, Mike. Um, well, I talked to Dario on the phone, uh, I don't know, three or four days ago, and he says, oh, I'm just getting ready to race a, a Brabham Formula One car, a BT, whatever that 44, thing, 44, 44 it was, yeah. Everybody, everybody's going to race the same car in the race, he said, but this thing's hard to drive. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sure he figured it out. Yeah, we're actually <laughs> going to catch up tomorrow and talk about that here. Let's go to uh, Kyle Donnelly. Great one. He says, guys, we've heard for two straight years after the Indy 500, if only it had been 80 degrees instead of 90, the race would have been brilliant. He says, now, with the schedule change to August, we're likely guaranteed to have surface of the sun temperatures. 
So what did teams and drivers and Jay Fry's team and Kara Adams' team at Firestone, what can we do to try and improve the show if it is blistering hot again? Well, I think, first of all, uh, uh, what's going to happen with uh, a 90-degree August day at Indianapolis is everybody's going to have a smile on their face because they're racing. Uh, I, I think uh, that's a big deal. Um, in terms of uh, the way the racetrack works, it still will be a very good motor race um, because certain people, certain race team people are going to figure out how to, how to drive around a racetrack that's a bit more slimy than it is at 80 degrees. Uh, the drivers that are well-conditioned, the crew members that are well-conditioned, the, the people on the timing stand that uh, are well-conditioned, uh, that, that make mental uh, decisions, uh, those groups of people will make a difference, and I think the fans will engage with that. Uh, I think it'll be a motor race. Uh, I, I don't think, if for no other reason, then we haven't raced for a while, and everybody's going to be up for it. Uh, so I, I can't speak for Firestone with the tires, but uh, they've always provided for us a very durable tire, no matter what the conditions are. Uh, so I have no doubt that the tires will, will withstand the, the elements without an issue. Uh, and we've run in Indianapolis, uh, what was it, two or three years ago on race day? Was it 90 degrees there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Last we've run month. like that before. Uh, we've run like that in hot conditions in other places. We've still had great races. So I'm not going to be the Mr. Positive about a negative situation, but I think that the, the racing will be good at Indy. Let's go back to Jordan Darwin again. Says, Mike, how much in a change in setups have we seen with the aero screen so far? He asks, is it significant enough that it might mix up the field once we get back to racing? And uh, Ross Porter has a similar question on cockpit temperatures. Coming back to Kyle's item about potentially a much hotter Indy 500 in August and cooling needs there. What have you heard, if anything, about more cooling options? I'll try to answer both the questions the best I can. Uh, I think we made made inroads into the cockpit cooling. Uh, in fact, a lot of people were probably 70% uh, shut down even at the Sebring test that we did pre, uh, pre-St. Pete. So there's a lot of air coming into the cockpit for the driver now that uh, wasn't originally designed into the package. It's probably 50% better, maybe 60% better than it was originally conceived to be. Will it work in 90-degree weather? We're going to find out. Um, in terms of the setup question from Jordan, correct, Jordan? Yes. The uh, uh, it's not as big a change as what we thought it was going to be. Now we haven't run a big oval like Indy yet to find out, but the testing that we've done, the the testing that we got to do prior to St. Petersburg, which was Kodak Barber, uh, St. Pete for most people. Uh, some people went to Texas. Uh, uh, from what we've seen from the Texas. Uh, results we get some we get some some information from Honda for that uh, we didn't see big huge changes and then we haven't seen massive changes either in the simulator and the simulator now for us in our case the Honda simulator has gotten to be quite good uh, compared to how any the, respectively the Chevy or the Honda simulators were when we started with each of them several years ago um, so we all believe the worst about weight forward, one and a half percent weight forward, I think it actually is. Uh, and it's nothing like that in, in, in the 
true practical sense. You do have to make some changes, and the driver really has to work on a bit of drive style stuff. Um, but uh, we didn't see significant uh, impact like we thought we would. Interesting as well to listen to drivers coming out of the, in particular, the spring training event at Circuit of the Americas, where there were some who were a little grumpy, weren't super, super happy, but there were also some who were very, who, who loved uh, the change, loved the handling dynamic change with that extra 1.5% of weight distribution on the front tires, and it seemed to do things they'd been hoping to have for a while. So uh, quite interesting, quite, quite. It is quite interesting, and, uh, you know, I somebody... Somebody on Twitter, I think it was the other night, uh, I don't usually look at too many questions, but I saw this one. Somebody said, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, something about Borday and I being on the same broadcast and, and I, what was it, answering the same question or something. So um, I thought, to, and I responded back, well, maybe I'll, I'll ask Marshall to uh, relay a question to Borday. Yes. And, and, what, and we can get to that eventually here, but the, the, uh, uh, race drivers, I don't know what people, I don't know how people view what race drivers do, how they drive. Uh, because some drivers are very, very, some drivers drive with the front axle. They rely on the setup on the front of the car with, and, and particularly under braking and some rely on the rear. So both are quick. Uh, but they set the angle that they want the car to be at the exit of the corner really early in the corner based on either the front or the rear. And we've had drivers that have been teammates that are, ex- are exact opposites that do that. Uh, so that's what I was going to lend a question toward Bourdais about that because he was really quick at, Se- at Sebring with uh, weight forward. So if you think about that for a minute, with, the, with what I've just said, that might describe what he does as a driver. Um, and, uh, and that might describe why some of the drivers that are not quick were quick at Sebring. It's got nothing to do with the, other than the fact that, uh, the drive style for that particular application suits them more than what it has in the past. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, that, that's kind of the question I was going to drive toward him. Maybe we still will, but, uh. We can go on here. Well, well, he charges me a lot per question, so I'll have to see uh, what I can afford from that guy. I tell you what, he is, man, he is terrible to work with. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal J.J. Gertler. He's always bringing the fun. He says, Mr. Hull, he says, Hull Motorsports has three fully sponsored cars. You can put three drivers of your choice from the current paddock in them. The only proviso is that none of them can be drivers you've actually worked with uh, or been on the same team before. Who do you choose and why? So, all right, so you're getting to play fantasy team owner. Uh, We don't want to say too many nice things about your rivals, but, you know, if you could put together, how's this? We'll treat this like it was the whole motorsports iRacing team. All the Ganassi drivers are taken. They're already on the Ganassi Uh team. So who do you draft in uh, elsewhere to fill the team? Okay, so let's let's get this right. There's 24 drivers on the grid presently. I'm going to pick three. I have we have three more, so that's six. So that's six from 24 is 18. So that means I'm gonna I'm gonna piss off 18 drivers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, who would I pick to drive three race cars as teammates? Uh, yeah. Pick, 
And I would, yeah. I would maybe throw of in the present. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say you. The interaction is something I know you really enjoy beyond the driving skill, right? We can all look and say, "Oh, uh-huh. that that person's an amazing race car driver." But yeah. curious if you just look at some of the the drivers you haven't worked with in the series today yeah, and no, go, oh, "That's saying. an interesting." I'd like, it'd be interesting to work with him and see what he's like or she's like. Well, number one on my list would be Will Power. Ooh. Um, uh, just because I I like what he does when he drives a race car. I like how hard he works at it. When he's in the car, I like the fact that he, I just from a distance, I don't know that he knows what he's actually doing. <laughs> I hate to say it like that because I don't want to offend him. No, I think he's it's just such a competitive, natural driver that he will get through it. Uh, and uh, I love that because that's almost a throwback thing. He's an animal, I, but but you're he, right. He, yeah, he seems yeah. he's the, the Robin Miller, Robin Miller. I'm sorry, the Robin Williams. <laughs> of IndyCar racing, just improv. I mean, there's just a feeling of amazing improvisation from this guy, but, but he, you know, rarely falls off the old high wire there. That's exactly right. And, uh, he takes it very personally. I mean, I'm not talking about if you offend him, I'm just saying he takes what he does very personally. He really gets into it and he, 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 he's got this blinder application about what he's doing. And I like that a lot about race drivers generally, and I like what he does with with how he how he's able to take the ability that he has and transfer it for an entire segment or segments together on the racetrack. I, I think that's really wonderful, uh, and I have a great degree of appreciation for that. Uh, uh, there's not too many people that have ever driven race cars. I feel that do that in this generation now that do what race drivers used to do, and I think that's what he does. Uh, that, but so I'm a throwback guy uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, thinking about present day race drivers, um, shoot beyond the shoot beyond that. Um, uh, who would I pick? You've got your Andretti uh, Autosport guys. You've got yeah, your no, Carpenter I'm going guys. I, I'm going through it in my head. Uh, Colton Herta, ooh, because he has so much potential, and it's just absolutely raw talent that's untapped. And uh, I, I just think he has such a future no matter where he races cars. Uh, it's a shame that he wasn't able to stay in Europe because I think that he would be, at his age, he'd be perfect for Formula One as an American. And it's just disappointing to see that happen in front of us because uh, nobody has a, Nobody in Formula One seems to care about us, really, truly. And uh, they should, and they should care about him. Um, because he's at the age where he should be driving a Formula One car on a proper team. Um, it's alarming how easy this appears to be for him. That's the mm-hmm. thing that just shocks me. You, we think yeah. of a lot of drivers you and I know that are personal friends, and we go, wow, we, we're just amazed by the talent you have, but we know you have to work at it to really get the most out of it. I look at someone like Colt and go, Obviously, he puts in a lot of work. I'm not saying he, he doesn't, but it just appears to just happen easily and naturally. Uh, it, yeah. It's Dixon, very similar in that regard, where you go, again, tons of work is put in. It's, this is not uh, anything other than that, but it just seems to be right there at the surface at all times that they can tap into and get 100% out of anything. And so I would say that if you put him with willpower, uh, if I was choosing a team of three people and you put him with willpower, uh, 
it would be more of a it, it would be a one-upmanship situation because of their respective natural talent, which would be which would drive the team upward massively. Um, and uh, then I would choose Alexander Rossi as as another. I wouldn't say the third driver, but one of the three, because he would be he's such a terrific race driver. He he appears to me to be somebody who not only gets it right, but when he gets it right technically, it gives him so much confidence that you can't beat him. And, and, I, and I think that those three people together on a team would be unbeatable. Uh, so if I were starting my own team after, after the, uh, uh, the uh, Trump financial era and somebody that's listening on this line has enough money to afford what I would like to do <laughs> and they want to hire me to run a team for them and have me be a part owner, Let's go after those three guys. Look at that. <laughs> Look at that. I love it. Uh, let's go to Lake Effect Racing. This is an interesting one. It says, Mr. Hole, when you're scouting young talent, what do you perceive as more impressive, say, an SCCA or NASA National Championship in one of the Formula Series, or would you air towards maybe a national karting t- uh, title? <laughs> huh. Do you look at one having more value than the other? That's a good question, um, and I know people. I, I don't know what's driving that particular question for that person, but I think race drivers, as they're as they're formative, as they're coming through that talent pool, need to make sure that they choose a place to race that's the most competitive place it can be, no matter where it is globally. If they have the money to do it then they should choose the place to race, whether it's karting or whether it's open-wheel racing or whatever racing it is. Uh, you, you, you're better off to be in a fire breather, breather series than to be the largest fish in a small pond. Um, and uh, that's, that's how you do it. Uh, um, you know, There's examples of people that have done it the other way that have gone all the way to the top, but frankly, the ones that have raced in the most competitive atmosphere have learned the most in the shortest period of time. And I would throw Uh, in here that for those who don't know folks like yourself and others who are in a position to look at talent and evaluate young talent, which stream should we be fishing in, right? mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. are less interested about how many championships does young driver have. It's who did they have to beat? You know, this is someone that yeah. might have finished third in the championship in whatever it was. But yeah. if you know the reality is they were in a smaller team that they were never going to beat the teams that finished first and second, and you look at everything they achieved, that would probably stand out to you more than, hey, here's just a trophy case filled full of things. So it's a bit subjective, but to your point, it's subjective based on the depth of talent you have to fight through. Yeah, and and that's right. And the and and the the reality of the situation is 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 the uh, the funding stream. Let's face it. But uh, if you want to learn the most in the least amount of time, I think you need to find the place that's the most competitive place to race. And if they if they knock your ears back <laughs> in that series, then you know how far you have to go. <laughs> and uh, that's. You know, I don't know. I can't tell you today what series that would be globally. 
without a, without looking at what's going to happen next, you know, in motor racing. But, you know, for a long time uh, in Europe, it was Formula 3 or GP3. Uh, I don't know that it's that way today. Uh, but it's just – we have examples of, of drivers, Newgarden and Colton, who are, who are recent drivers that we know of, and, and Connor Daly also. So those three drivers – what did they do? They didn't stay in America at the beginning. What did they do? They went, went to Europe or went to England, and they raced there, all three of them respectively, in the most competitive atmosphere they could. They came back to the United States, and when they did, look what they did. They drove wheels or drove circles around most everybody else they raced in intermediate formula cars before they ever got in any cars. So I... I I don't know how to look at it, except that's the way that I look at it. Got two questions to go, Mr. Hull. One of them, it almost sounds like insider trading, possibly. This comes from Jamie Carr. says, Mike, when you learned that Target was ending its 27 years of sponsorship of the team, what did you go buy at Target before you lost your employee discount status? <laughs> uh, well, Jamie, I still I still shop at Target. Uh, <laughs> I love that. And, and you know, we don't say we're going to the store; we say we're going to Target, right? The uh, <laughs> or a significant other does uh, with your discount card and your credit card. The uh, and and that that and, and that's the way it should be. Um, what did I buy at Target before I lost my uh, my uh, my status at Target? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I don't I don't remember to be honest about it because I still shop there. I, I can tell you one thing that I didn't do after the first time going to Target though. I went to a Target store in Indianapolis, the one off Thirty Eighth Street, and uh, I had my my team Target jacket. It was in the winter, and I had my t- red team Target jacket on. And I've got a shopping cart. I'm filling it up. And I had four people ask me where something was in the store. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the last time I wore my Target jacket to the Target store. Uh, (laughs) Wow. Because I had no idea where the pretzels were. Uh, (laughs) See, this is a fine separator between a good human being like you and a bad one like me (laughs) at times for reasons i don't always understand maybe i just look like a guy who works at a grocery store department store but more often than you might expect i have folks ask me oh excuse me sir where is the so-and-so and instead of saying i'm sorry you i don't work here i just make it up Oh, uh, yeah. all 13 right behind the tomatoes, whatever. And so I feel bad because I've well, I sent. I wouldn't be able to do that because I might run into them again. Well, true. Very true. But yeah, I guess I'd never really thought that through. But yeah, I apologize here on the podcast. All the people I've and sent so I had to tell aimless them, I said, searches. You know, I'm shopping like you are. I just have the, I just am lucky enough to have a Target jacket. See, that's what you get. You buy enough. They give you a jacket. That's what it is. That's right. Oh, that is so brilliant. Well, let's close on a, a fun and familiar topic whenever uh, you're on the show. you Heck, we did a, a whole special interview podcast and video about this. It comes from our pal Kevin Perez Frederico. says, Mike, you share some more of the old fun stories during the Zanardi and Vassar years, something to help us take our minds off the pandemic. And I'll maybe throw in, 
obviously, we love any and all uh, Alex and Jimmy stories, but I don't know if we hear as many Vassar stories as we do yeah. Zanardi. Well, it's funny because uh, I was talking to your friend Paul Fanner last night on the phone, and we were talking about some things that happened in the past with Vassar because we have him in common, Fanner and I do. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'll tell you a great story. Um, after I left Patrick racing and I was pissed off at racing and I was going to quit racing, I went back to California to run my dad's golf club company and I was doing fine there. And, uh, Jim McGee called me who, who stayed with the Patrick team that, uh, Bobby Ray Hall and Hogan purchased. And, uh, um, so this would have said, been 92-ish, 91? Yeah, 92, yeah 90, late 91, early 92. And uh, so he said to me, hey, there's this guy out in Palm Springs Valley. His name is Jim Hayhoe, and he's a developer out there of golf horse communities. And uh, he wants to run this young guy named Jimmy Vassar in an IndyCar, and you'd be perfect to run that program, and they just want to run Indianapolis. I said, Jim, I'm not going to do it. I said, I know Jimmy. I don't know, Hey Ho. He said, listen, I'm going to have Hey Ho call you. Would you just talk to him? So Jim Hey Ho called me on the telephone, and I talked to him for a few minutes. And he said, Mike, why don't you come out here to uh, Desert Horizons? That was the, the, place, the place that he was building at the time behind a gate. And uh, play golf with us for the weekend. And, uh, and, and just let's just talk it through. So I go out there, and I, so I said to them, okay, I'll do Indianapolis only for you with Jimmy. Jimmy was going to be a rookie at the Speedway. I'll do that, but that's it. I'm not doing anything else. Okay. So we agreed to do that. So Hayhoe bought two cars from Rick Gallus and a motor program from Franz Weiss. And we're in this little shop in, uh, in Southern California, and I hired four people to work for me. And I'm going back and forth with this thing. And uh, uh, Hayhoe calls on the phone, and he says, Jimmy and I want to come down and talk to you guys. I said, okay. There were actually five of us working, and that's the point of this story. So there were myself, four mechanics, that's five, and Ron Burton, the famous artist, racing yeah. artist. Jim had hired Burton to, 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 to draw sponsor <laughs> presentation things. So Burton has this easel set up in, the, in this little tiny cubicle shop, and he's doing this stuff. So Hey-Ho and Vassar show up. And they go, oh, we got a great opportunity, guys. Um, I, we befriended a Dennis Connor, the Stars and Stripes guy, and he's willing to give us money to go to Surfer's Paradise. But we know you guys are flat out just getting ready for Indy. We know it's a long way away, but these cars are just – they're a mess. You know, you don't have any equipment, all the rest of that. Now, we would have had a load in the airplane six days later. And this is the uh, Dennis Conner, Stars and Stripes, isn't it? America's Cup yachting. That's correct. Right, because naturally, Australia. Yeah, Australia, yeah, right. Okay, so uh, uh, he says, Jim Jim Hayo says, okay, but we're going to make this fair. We're going to make it democratic. He says, so we're just going to do a simple yes and no vote. Burton, uh, cut up some pieces of paper and give them to each guy and have them put yes or no on the piece of paper and put it in your hat. Bert says, okay. So the ballots go in the, in the hat. Hayo starts pulling them out one at a time. So, and Jim and Jimmy both voted. So there were six of us. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, uh, six, seven of us, and, uh, and two more. 
uh, Vassar and Hayhoe. So there's nine votes in the, in the hat. First one's no. Second one's no. Third one's no. Fourth one's no. Fifth one's yes. Yes. No. Yes. Okay. I think that's nine. Uh, so we had six no's and three yeses. Hayhoe goes, okay, we're going. <laughs> Okay, so we did make it. They held the airplane for us at LAX, the freighter, for two extra hours so we could load our stuff in there, and we went and raced that race. So after Hayo and Ambassador leave the building, I had the guys there. I said, who voted yes? Burton says, I did. And uh, one of the guys says to Bert, well, why did you vote yes? He says, well, I've never been to Australia. Ah, uh, the frickin' artist. <laughs> the frickin' art. Granted, hey-ho can't count, clearly. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, oh, that's... Uh. Well, there's a bastard story for you that probably nobody's ever heard. Uh, and you're still trying to catch up from sleep from that event. Good Lord. Yeah, that was a bit of an uphill climb there. Yeah. Uh, I love the artist with the easel painting uh, ends up being one of the tipping points. <laughs> oh lord well yeah that was great and and fr- frankly that jim hale was such a terrific person yes uh that uh uh it was fun working for him as hard as it was uh because he didn't really have enough money to go racing the right way but he wanted to race in the worst way and that's a great combination <laughs> in a way because he had so much enthusiasm for everybody uh, and he was very instrumental in Jimmy's career uh, a- after that. You know, he helped Jimmy continue to race on that team. I went, ended up going to work at Patrick Racing, the, the, uh, the, the other Patrick Racing. Um, and uh, uh, I went to work there uh, post that event. Um, I'm sorry, I went to work at Ganassi's after that event and left those guys from the Patrick thing. So I had hey-ho between the two. And... Uh, and then Heho and Vassar ended up with us at uh, Ganassi in 95, and Heho was very instrumental in helping with that project financially to where Chip took it on and made up the difference and made it happen. And uh, uh, that, that really pushed Jimmy into the 96 season when he won the championship. Uh, so, but Jim Heho was very instrumental in, in Jimmy's uh, uh, stimulus for his career. Uh, I hate to use that word now, but that's what he was. Yeah, and he yeah. was there in 91 as well with Genoa yeah. Racing uh, with a hey-ho that, call assistance there. That's um, correct, one yeah. Of, one yeah. of my alma maters. And, yeah, as I've mentioned before, uh, Jimmy was the pride of Fife Ridge Racing, which was my first <laughs> prep right. shop at Sears Point he, where he yeah, won he the uh, was. He 86 was. Formula Ford National Championship. So yeah, yep. and as a matter of as a matter of fact, we were in this little garage at Indianapolis uh, next to Chip's team, and uh, for the entire month there, Tom Anderson was all over me, uh, who was running Chip's team, about talking to Chip about coming to work for Chip, and that was not my plan. My plan was to go back to California. I was done. I, I was not going to work in motor racing anymore at all. And the day after the Indianapolis 500, I'm there helping the guys pack everything up. Um, and Tom comes over to the Speedway and says, you have to come over to the race shop and, and talk to Chip because he won't let you leave until you talk to him. I said, Tom, I'm not coming over there. Wow. <laughs> and uh, he says, please just come over there. So uh, 
I, I, I did go over there and, and talk to him and understood what Chip wanted to do for the future, and it seemed like the right thing to do, and we ended up a couple of weeks later making a deal. Um, so, and Tom was there for a long, long time, and uh, he and I got along really well, but we didn't have anything in common <laughs> at all. Uh, we looked at things very differently, but we had one goal in mind, and that was to try to build the team to where, what it ended up becoming. Um, and uh, uh, he was a terrific individual, and I'm glad that he took the time to to have me talk to Chip. Uh, so it was, it, you know, it worked out well. But Hayho was really the conduit for all of that, both Jimmy and myself. You know, Tom and his wife Cheryl, two just invaluable members of the IndyCar community. But I do love the through line here. Otherwise, I'd probably need to be doing a golf podcast to connect with Mike Hull at this point. If not for this, uh, we've. It, thanks, Ron Burton. You and uh, that extra vote tip things over so that we still get to know Mike Hull in motor racing, not golf tech. Mike Golf Pro. Yeah, right. Boy, well. You, You'd be yeah, I, you'd be baked I, like happy. a lizard by now with all the days in the yeah. sun you would have spent. Yeah, well, that's what California guys do anyway, Marshall. You know that. Well, very uh, true. <laughs> well, appearance twenty two is in the books, my friend. I don't know if okay, it felt great. any better or worse than the others, but uh, thank you for taking. Well, I would some just time. say one more thing. You know, the fans, all the fans that are out there. I know, I know, things are really, really difficult. And uh, I don't know if this is a matter of levity, what we've just done or not, but uh, I think you have to keep a very positive attitude about what you're doing with your lives. And uh, this deal that, that's going on with us in the United States now is uh, we've had a preview of it globally, um, but we just have to get through this thing together and, uh, and get out the other side. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the tough stuff, right? The whole uh, yeah payroll protection program. I mean, that's... <clears throat> That, I think, is going to be a, a lifesaver for so many IndyCar teams, but we cannot ignore the fact that right now, uh, until that is up and running, you know, we are going to have a lot of teams that are not feeling super confident and their employees as well. But to your point, we're going to talk about the hard stuff. We can't ignore that it doesn't exist, yeah. but at no point in time are you and I dispirited, and I would hope those that are listening who might be uh, struggling to keep faith, this isn't the first time. We've been through tough stuff in our world and our sport, and we absolutely will persevere and get through this. So that's about all I got for you this week, my friend. Sebastian Bourdais is up next. Going to do a separate episode with my French fry here, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is the amazing Mike Hull. We will speak to you here shortly. <laughs> 